We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Scripture reading this evening will come from Second Chronicles 20. I'll give you a second to turn there. Um, and I've been promised there's not too many hard names. We'll see if that holds true. After this, the Moabites and Ammonites with some of the Munites came to war against Jehoshaphat. Some people came and told Jehoshaphat, A vast army is coming against you from Edom, from the other side of the Dead Sea. It is already on Hazan Tamar, that is, and Gidi. Alarmed, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord, and he proclaimed a fast for all Judah. The people of Judah came together to seek help from the Lord. Indeed, they came from every town in Judah to seek him. Then Jehoshaphat stood up in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem at the new temple of the Lord, in front of the new courtyard, and said, Lord, the the God of our ancestors, are you not the God who is in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your hand, and no one can withstand you. Our God, did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to your descendants of Abraham, your friend? They have lived in it and have built in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, If calamity comes upon us, whether the sword or judgment or plague or famine, we will stand in your presence before this temple that bears your name and will cry out to you in our distress, and you will hear us and save us. But now, here are men from Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who invade when they came from Egypt. So they turned away from them and did not destroy them. See how they are repaying us by coming to drive us out of the possession you gave us as an inheritance. Our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. All the men of Judah, with their wives and children and little ones, stood there before the Lord. Then the Spirit of the Lord came on Jehaziel, son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jeel, the son of Mataniah, a Levite and descendant of Asaph, as he stood in the assembly. He said, Listen, King Jehoshaphat and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army, for the battle is not yours but God's. Tomorrow march down against them. They will be climbing up by the pass of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the gorge in the desert of Jeruel. You will not have to fight this battle. Take up your positions, stand firm, and see the deliverance the Lord will give you, Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Go out to face them tomorrow, and the Lord will be with you. Jehoshaphat bowed down with his face to the ground, and all the people of Judah and Jerusalem fell down and worshipped before the Lord. Then some Levites from the Kohathites and Korahites stood up and praised the Lord, the God of Israel, with a loud voice. Early in the morning, they left for the desert of Tekoa. As they set out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Listen to me, Judah and people of Jerusalem. 
Have faith in the Lord God, and you will be upheld. Have faith in his prophets, and you will be successful. After consulting the people, Jehoshaphat appointed men to sing to the Lord and to praise him for the splendor of his holiness. And they went out at the head of the army, saying, Give thanks to to the Lord, for his love endures forever. As they began to sing in praise, the Lord set ambushes against the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, who were invading Judah, and they were defeated. The Ammonites and the Moabites rose up against the men from Mount Seir to destroy and annihilate them. After they finished slaughtering the men from Seir, they helped to destroy one another. When the men of Judah came to the place that overlooks the desert and looked toward the vast army, they saw only dead bodies lying on the ground. No one had escaped. So Jehoshaphat and his men went to carry off their plunder, and they found among them a great amount of equipment and clothing and also articles of value, much more than they could take away. There was so much plunder that it took three days to collect it. On the fourth day, they assembled in the valley of Barakah, where they praised the Lord. This is why it is called the Valley of Barakah to this day. Then, led by Jehoshaphat, all the men of Judah and Jerusalem returned joyfully to Jerusalem, for the Lord had given them cause to rejoice over their enemies. They entered Jerusalem and went to the temple of the Lord with harps and lyres and trumpets. The fear of God came on all the surrounding kingdoms when they heard how the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. And the kingdom of Jehoshaphat was at peace, for his God had given him rest on every side. So Jehoshaphat reigned over Israel. He was 35 years old when he became king of Judah, and he reigned in Jerusalem 25 years. His mother name, mother's name was Azubah, daughter of Shehili. He followed the ways of his father Asa and did not stray from them. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. The high places, however, were not removed, and the people still had not set their hearts on the God of their ancestors. The other events of Jehoshaphat's reign from beginning to end are written in the annals of Jehu, son of Hanai, which are recorded in the book of the kings of Israel. Later, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, made an alliance with Ahaziah, king of Israel, whose way were ways were wicked. He agreed with him to construct a fleet of trading ships. After these were built at Ezion Geber, Eliza, son of Dodavahu of Merasha, prophesied against Jehoshaphat, saying, Because you have made an alliance with Ahaziah, the Lord will destroy what you have made. The ships were wrecked and were not able to set sail to trade. Um, I'll now invite up uh, Dr. Mark Snowberger to deliver the message. Well, good evening. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, back to the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk. I was just, sorry, it was, I wasn't paying much attention when, I, well, I was paying attention to the reading. It didn't make sense that they were going from Ezion Geber to Tarshish. I didn't think those connected by water except around Africa. And I, I was, I was, I was uh, deep in thought when I realized it was my turn to come up. So, <laughs> sorry about that. Okay, so we are in the book of Habakkuk again, and if you have been here in the, in the previous two or one of the two sessions this morning, uh, we went through the first two chapters of this little book of Habakkuk. Uh, the first chapter, if you'll remember, we saw an exchange, a dialogue between Habakkuk and God concerning some very troubling current events then taking place in Israel, the people of Israel had abandoned God's laws, had forsaken his ways, 
God did not seem to be very concerned. And Habakkuk was agitating over this situation. We observed in him a model of how we should approach a sovereign God when our world seems to be in distress. Uh, but we, we noted that his response was not something that simply emerged in the crucible of the moment. Uh, instead, we discovered that his were lifetime habits that kicked in automatically when the crisis came. We saw a habit of persistent prayer, regularly placing God's interests ahead of his own, a habit of reverence and an ingrained habit of thinking the best of his God rather than the worst, assuming that there is a reason for all that is occurring and God will in his good time make it known. But in God's graciousness, God actually acquiesces to Habakkuk's rather persistent and pointed appeals and divulged his secret will, what he was going to be doing uh, with Israel. Israel would be punished, he said. They would be punished for these, uh, dis- their disregard of the Mosaic law. Um, but they were going to be pu- uh, punished by the wicked Babylonians. And of course, this was not the answer that Habakkuk was hoping for or expecting because this actually made the problem worse. Uh, because we find here God chastening his people for their wickedness with a people whose wickedness was much greater. Justice seemed even more elusive. And again, uh, God answered Habakkuk's concerns in the second chapter, which we uh, discussed in the morning uh, worship service. And there's a promise here that God will eventually flex the muscles of his almighty arm and set things straight. And verse after verse, uh, this message comes out, these woes uh, weighed against uh, the enemies of God's people. Uh, But there's particularly three theological nodal points here in this chapter that sort of stood out uh, that were very encouraging to Habakkuk, and he included them in this book here. First, the just shall live by faith. Uh, And though the world around us acts wickedly, God's people will and must act faithfully and by virtue of their faith. They will live. God will act in personal justice, as it were, for every man and woman rightly related to his God in this life. Secondly, we saw that the earth would be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is a regular statement repeated several times in the Old Testament that anticipates a day when the glorious new covenant will be implemented, the kingdom effected in the the great millennial period, and all will know God, even from the greatest to the least of them. God will act in global justice and restore the whole world to what it ought to be. And it's a grand uh, promise of the way that God will ultimately set things straight. But we also saw a statement here in the very last verse of this chapter, verse 20, that the Lord himself is in his holy temple, high and lifted up, seated, calm, secure, and in complete control of everything that's going on. And so we're assured here that the justice that is going to come eventually is actually not all that far off. God is ruling in perfect justice today even now rendering it certain that all things, no matter how impossible it seems, are working together for the good of those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. And this is the great promise with which 
uh, God's message to Habakkuk ends. And armed with these three bracing truths, Habakkuk's confidence in God is restored. And in response, he bursts out into what can be called nothing other than a psalm of confidence. A psalm with a a summary theme, if I may, that I can trust my God because he's sovereign and because he's good. So let's read this third chapter together and unpack it uh, together tonight. A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet. O Lord, I have heard your speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Taman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. His glory covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light, and he had rays flashing from his hand. There his power was hidden. Before him went pestilence. Fever followed at his feet. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and startled the nations. And the everlasting mountains were scattered. The perpetual hills bowed. His ways are everlasting. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian trembled. O Lord, were you displeased with the rivers? Was your anger against the rivers? Was your wrath against the seas? That you rode on horses, your chariots of salvation. Your bow was made quite ready. Oaths were sworn over your arrows. You divided the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and trembled. The overflowing of the water passed by. The deep uttered its voice and lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon even stood still in their habitation. At the light of your arrows they went, at the shining of your glittering spear. You marched through the land in indignation. You trampled the nations in anger. You went forth for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You struck the head from the house of the wicked by laying laying them bare from the foundation to the neck. You thrust through with his own arrows the heads of his villages. They came out like a whirlwind to scatter me. Their rejoicing was like feasting on the poor in secret. You walked through the sea with your horses and, and through the heap of great waters. When I heard this, my body trembled. My lips quivered at the voice, and rottenness entered into my bones. I trembled in myself that I might rest in the day of trouble. When he comes up to the people, he will invade them with his troops. And though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail, and the fields yield no food, Though the flock be cut off from the fold, and there is no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet, and he will make me walk on my high hills. The psalm here before us tonight reads like a great many of the psalms in the book of Psalms that constitute the largest book in the Old Testament. We note, for instance, that there's a number of musical markers uh, that are probably not intended for reading, which is why I didn't read them. Um, First, you'll notice that very funny word in verse 1, shigionot. Frankly, we have no idea what the word means. Uh, That's why it hasn't been translated in most of your translations. It uh, probably is a, uh, a tune title that would have been known to the performers of the music, and as you 
you, you page through the books of your hymnal, there are actually uh, tune, uh, tune titles that often are place names and personal names that really have no particular meaning other than that's just the name they gave to the, to the song. And so probably we're not, we're, not, we're not hurt by not knowing exactly what this word means. Uh, we also find at, at the very end uh, some instructions here. Uh, for the choir director, to the chief musician, and, and uh, the instruments that are supposed to be used, stringed instruments. And then, of course, this word selah is used three times. Again, it's a Hebrew musical marker, the precise meaning of which has been lost. Everyone, it seems, that you read in the commentaries has his own idea as to what the term actually means, but at the end of the day, we really don't know, but probably are not disadvantaged uh, by not knowing uh, what the word means. But more substantively, you'll also note a similarity of this psalm with several other biblical psalms in that it offers a historical catalog of the mighty sovereign acts of God during the years that the nation of Israel was developing under the leadership of Moses, principally, but uh, then beyond that as well. Moses himself was the first one to write one of these psalms, uh, Exodus 15 is the first of these historical psalms. Uh, just after the walls of the Red Sea had come crashing down against the armies of Pharaoh. Moses actually wrote several of these psalms during his years leading the Israelites. The Judge Deborah uh, renders a similar psalm in the book of Judges. And in the book of Psalms proper, we find at least five of these psalms that reflect extended ruminations about the history of the works of God for and among his people. And Habakkuk's psalm is simply one of the last uh, written under inspiration for us. Psalm has three stanzas. Uh, the first two stanzas are a celebration of God's ways, but the third reflects a bit of Habakkuk's own personal response to the first two stanzas in which we find a little bit of a twist at the end. But let's start here with the first stanza here, part one, verses three to seven. There's a great theme of this psalm, and really of the whole book, of the sovereignty of God, which is a great theme for almost any occasion. Uh, but Habakkuk's psalm, he wants to make sure that we know, is not about the sovereignty of God as an end in itself. Uh, it's not merely an all-powerful God who wows us by crushing the wicked in his fury. It includes this, of course, uh, but I think it's important to notice that most of the time when God acts in violence, there is an end in view. I think perhaps some of, sometimes those of us who love the sovereignty of God can run a bit towards vindictiveness at times. God's going to crush all of my enemies. But I think sometimes we miss something when we think just in those terms. God's sovereignty is not just in his breaking things, but the kindness of restoring and saving what is good. And this is a theme that returns multiple times in this psalm. He's establishing righteousness. And, and the goal here is not to render us, yeah, we won, but rather quiet not merely with awe, but also with gratitude, confidence, and contentment. He begins with God rushing out from Taman and Mount Paran. These names are immediately a bit puzzling because they are Edomite cities south of the land of promise. 
uh, cities that belonged to the descendants of Esau, Jacob's brother, and they were something of a thorn in the flesh of Israel for much of their history. But these two towns are also associated with the broader peninsula of Sinai, in which we find the mountain of God. This is a place where Abraham had long ago met with God. There's some who suggest here that it may have also been the place when, on which the uh, threatened sacrifice of Isaac took place. That's disputed, but uh, it's, a, it's a possibility. It was certainly the place where Moses met with God after fleeing uh, Egypt, after killing, killing a man and, and, and being put on the run there. And of course we know it's the place where God gave the law. Seems that before the establishment of the tabernacle and later the temple, this was the localized place where God was most likely to meet with his people. It was the mountain of God. And this is the place where God reveals himself most frequently in the early chapters of the Bible. And here in verse 3, God is seen rushing out from this place, from his holy mountain, to defend his chosen people. He stands between the Israelites who were trapped against the Red Sea and creates a wall of darkness uh, for Pharaoh's oncoming army in Exodus chapter 14. And then, of course, we know he creates a path through the Red Sea in order for his people to cross through and then to eliminate uh, the threat that was behind them, allowing Pharaoh to come into the Red Sea and then to be destroyed. And so God is roused to protect his helpless infant nation. Again, this is, this is the theme that sort of emerges. This violence that takes place is always for his people. Uh, so God arrives in a flurry of power and judgment against the enemies of his people. He brings, it says, pestilence, perhaps Plagues are the, the ten plagues are in view, but probably specifically this plague of darkness and the wheels falling off of Pharaoh's chariots while they were in the Red Sea. The nations shake. The Egyptians are afflicted. The Midianites watching from a distance are all a tremble. But the primary response and the response with which Habakkuk begins is one of praise and delight apparently associating himself with that generation of Israelites. Because for the Israelites, God veils his power. There in verse 18, remember when they got to the mountain, the people were frightened, they heard the thunder, they saw the flashes of lightning, the mountain smoking, and were afraid and trembled and stood afar off and asked Moses, is it possible that we don't actually have to meet God ourselves, but we can have a representative? And the answer that God gives, that's reasonable. That's reasonable. Let's do that. And then, of course, he, he instructs them, very firm terms, that they need to listen to the prophets that he sends to them, uh, but he acquiesces because he doesn't want his people to be scared. And that's Habakkuk's point. To the armies of Egypt who were crushed, God was a terrible and mighty foe. But Israel was delivered. Backed up against the Red Sea, facing certain annihilation, the Israelites are rescued by God to their great astonishment, to their great joy. And God roars and rescues them when all hope was gone. And perhaps 
I get a picture here of a fierce grizzly bear that discovers her cubs are in danger, fiercely eliminates the risk, and then once the danger has passed, goes and tends to the cubs, takes care of them. And so what Habakkuk does is gives God praise, not because so much he's a fierce God, but also because he was good in the outworking of his sovereignty. And I think this is the lesson that Habakkuk has learned and in retrospect could identify in God routinely throughout the history of Israel. God moves in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea, rides upon the storm. O fearful saints, fresh courage take. Those clouds you so much dread so soon will break. His purpose will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. So judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for amazing grace. Behind that frowning providence, there hides a smiling face. And I think that's exactly what Habakkuk wishes us to see in this psalm. Not just a violent God, a fierce God, who has a frowning face, but also a tender God whose violence is always measured and purposeful, never an end unto itself. We move then to the second section here, Remembrance of God's Deliverance, uh, verses 8 to 15. And he continues what he has started in the first stanzas. He, He begins with a series of questions that might seem a bit unusual at first until you see exactly what Habakkuk is attempting to accomplish in this psalm. God, were you angry with the River Jordan when you split it in two with your great power, stopped the waters from flowing so that the Israelites could get across? Were you indignant, we find? Was your anger against the sea when you dramatically, again, split it in half and created a path for the Israelites and closed it on the raging Egyptians? When you split the world with rivers, were you angry with the earth? Perhaps this is a reference to the river of water that appeared in the wilderness when Moses struck the rock and, uh, and, the, and the river accompanied them as they uh, journeyed through their wilderness wanderings. Perhaps it also a, a, could be a reference uh, to the future river that will be connecting it. One day, the Mediterranean Sea and the Dead Sea at the second coming of Christ. And so there's going to be some violent geological activity that takes place in order that these rivers can be put into their place. And the question is, are you angry at the earth that you split it with rivers and two? When the mountains shook with, your, with fury at Sinai, is it because you don't like mountains? When the sun and the moon, we saw Verse 11, stood still at Ajalon in response to the request for more hours to complete the battle. Was this evidence of your violent nature? And the answer in every case is a, is a, is a resounding, oh, of course not. What might seem to be the chariots of wrath, about which we sing sometimes, are actually, we find in verse 8, chariots of salvation that carved a path through the sea. And though it was violent and spectacular and makes us think rightly that God is great, when we look more closely, we also see that on display is the fact that God is good. God is not to be viewed 
as an irrational or impulsive God who gets angry and smashes things randomly because he gets mad. The wrath of God is always purposeful, it's always measured, and is only ever as severe as his holiness demands. Like that's a question that sometimes comes up in, in, uh, in uh, candidates who are examined for ordination to the ministry. Is, or, is, is the wrath of God one of his attributes? That's a trick question. And sometimes uh, the, 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 the quick answer is, well, yes, because he exhibits wrath sometimes. But we find that the attributes of God are actually those qualities that cohere in and circulate continuously within the Godhead, characteristics that he exhibits all the time and make him who he is. God is always holy. God is always merciful. God is always gracious, loving, long-suffering. But the same cannot be said of the wrath of God. He is not always wrathful. In fact, we find, we find reminders of this. He, is not, he will not be angry forever. This is something that we see routinely throughout the Psalms. When sin is absent, there is no wrath, because, sin, because wrath is God's settled disposition against sin in the world. And so when sin is absent, God's wrath is wonderfully absent as well. God does not have wrath in infinite supply. He is not continuously angry. His wrath is but for a moment. He is slow to wrath. He is abounding in loving kindness. He will not be angry forever, the psalmist says. He will judge the wicked in wrath, to be sure. But there will be a day in which we shall be with him forever and see no evidence of his wrath. And so likewise, when God marched through the earth in fury, verse 12 says, when he threshed the nations, crushed the head of the wicked and left them desolate, verse 13. When you killed with arrows, verse 14. When you trampled the waters, verse 15. He does not do this for the mere sake of violence. But as verse 13 says, for the salvation of his people. To the rescue of his anointed and his deliverance of the poor and afflicted. In verse 14. And folks... When that cup that God gives to you turns bitter, when the clouds swirl, when darkness comes, whatever form that might take, realize this, God is good. God is good. And in some way, somehow, Romans eight twenty eight is still true. God is still working all things out for our ultimate good and for his glory. And as the carnage mounts at times, we find small promises scattered throughout the scriptures that he has given to us, verses that give us confidence that God is both great and good. He will not allow you to suffer beyond what you're able. The suffering he sends will produce for you a far exceeding weight of glory. The patience that he perfects in you through suffering will render you perfect, lacking nothing. God does cause all things to work together for the good of those who love him. God's a sovereign God who works all things out for his good pleasure. But he does not do, we don't want to give, do him a disservice by imagining that he is a capricious, impulsive, irrational uh, God in the exercise of his sovereignty. He is a good God. God's frowning providence always hides a smiling face, as the song says. No, you may not see it right now. The fact is, you may not. And you might go to the grave not seeing it. 
Rest assured, it's always there. I can trust my God because he's sovereign and because he's good. So we move then, verse 16, uh, to the close of this book, and Habakkuk gives his personal reflection on what he has read. So we see here uh, uh, his personal response. My body trembles, my lips quiver, rottenness enters into my bones, and so, so forth. And, uh, he is, and yet he is confident that he should wait uh, patiently here uh, for the day of trouble, uh, even though uh, he knows it's going to be bad, he recognizes that the end uh, there is uh, there is uh, he has confidence that there is pleasure forevermore. And again, I think we see here in Habakkuk an, an excellent example of how we should relate to God. Habakkuk has been reminded afresh of the great power of God and the certainty that no matter how great the opposition, no how no, no matter how terrible the carnage. God will set things straight, and his reaction is that his heart pounds, his lips quiver, his body goes limp. He nearly faints when he realizes how great God really is. And the, and, and the response is very similar to Isaiah's response that we're very familiar with in Isaiah chapter 6, right? Uh, where he comes face to face with God, and, and Job, when he lowers his proud head and grovels on the ground as as God pushes back at his uh, sometimes impatient response against him. And I think we do well to respond the same way in the quiet solemnity of the prayer closet, right? We do well to sing about these things as well, and I'm so glad that we did sing several of those songs even tonight. The rich songs about the providence of God, which so mark the older hymnals uh, as our, our are just a wealth uh, for the troubled soul. But Habakkuk's response, sober as it was, wasn't gloomy. Okay? He, he is actually quite hopeful for relief that God will eventually bring, knowing that God's anger will not last forever. Habakkuk knew there would be a period of difficulty, and it's described here in verse 17, and here's where the where the, uh, the twist is in Habakkuk's response. There's a progression here of severe hardship that Habakkuk himself and the nation uh, would together experience. Uh, the fig tree, firstly, will not blossom. That's not a particularly bad problem here. Figs were a delicacy of the Israelites. They occasionally enjoyed when they were in season, but they were not a staple part of the diet of the of the Jewish people. But secondly, there wouldn't be any more wine. There would need no fruit on the vines. Wine was much more important to the Israelite people. Perhaps not necessary, but it was a favorite drink of the people. And, and also, the alcohol was a very important element of water purification, uh, much, of the, much of which was unsafe to drink without the addition of the alcohol in these wines. Thirdly, the olive crop failed. Now this was more serious. Olive oil was a staple of cooking, also provided fuel for their household lighting. If the previous two items were dispensable, this one was not. This is something they really needed. Then the fields would fail, we find. The fields would yield no food, 
uh, there would be no grains. Right? The, the, the grains that were uh, part of the rich center of the Israelite uh, uh, geography there would not be there. This was their staple food source. Crop failure meant famine. This was a severe hardship. Fifth here, the sheep would die. Sheep were very important not only in providing some of their principal meat, but also clothing for the Israelites. Now not only do they lack luxuries, they didn't have, uh, they had the inconvenience of not having some things they were accustomed to having, but now they were facing starvation and nakedness. I mean, this, 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 is, getting, this is getting desperate. And then finally, the cattle would die. There would be no herd in the stalls. And in a famine, that would be the last thing to go. Seems a little odd to us, but as long as you had cattle, you had a way to recover once the, uh, the famine ended. But with the loss of cattle came the loss of all hope. There, there really was no hope of recovery at that point. This was a terminal blow. And as you look at your life, you might find yourself somewhere along this sequence, right? Somewhere in this sequence. There's been disappointments. There have been trials that have brought you to various stages in this list. And I guarantee that if the Lord tarries, you will eventually get to the end of the list, right? Your condition will eventually, as we said this morning, become terminal. And yet, what's the response in verse 18? I will rejoice. I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take great delight that God will deliver that he will set things straight, not only with destruction and wrath, but by rescuing the righteous and the just and bringing them eternal relief. With God, devastation is always the doorway to deliverance. This was the only way that Habakkuk could close this book with the unlikely metaphor of a deer skipping about while he was facing starvation, nakedness, and death. This is the only way that the martyrs of which we spoke this morning over the centuries went cheerfully to the stake to be burned for their faith because they believed in God's sovereign control and the certainty of the afterlife. And they knew this sovereign God was a good God and he would set things straight. They trusted their God because he was sovereign and because he was good. A few years ago, many years ago now, I became acquainted with a man by the name of James Anderson. He'd been a soldier in the uh, Canadian Army. Your pastor and I went to school with him at the seminary. He had a very sharp mind, um, but I never knew James in this way. He contracted a combination of diseases that attacked his internal organs, specifically his lungs and digestive tract, and the disease left him uh, in severe and continual pain, the medications that he was obliged to take sort of made him look something like a soft-boiled egg in his, in his in consistency. His appearance was made worse by the fact that he went through multiple surgeries to repair his damaged organs, and so he was tattooed with ugly scars. But while the pain and medication sometimes affected James' attention span, his mind remained sharp, and he wanted to continue on through seminary. Spent countless hours in the hospital reading theology books, biblical commentaries, most of all his Bible. He enrolled in seminary. He started five separate semesters 
but in each of those semesters, some physical difficulty made it impossible for him to finish. His health became so frail that he was obliged to drop out of school. And on this fifth semester, I remember uh, he came to the realization he could never finish seminary, he would probably not pastor, that he would not probably be able to hold a job or support his wife and three children. And I remember that a pastor friend and I, Pearson Johnson, visited him in a Canadian hospital after another one of his surgeries. And there he lay, bloated, obvious pain from recent surgery. He was able to say a few words, but he did ask for us to pray with him. And so uh, Pastor Pearson prayed. I prayed as well, trying to remind James in my prayer that God was sovereign. This, This was sort of something that was big for me at the time. You know, God is sovereign. God is sovereign, I kept saying. And when we were done, we uh, looked at him. He was laying there quite quietly with his eyes closed. We thought he was asleep. And so we sort of got up quietly and sort of tiptoed out. Uh, but uh, as we got up to leave, he began praying. He only prayed a few words, but he said this, Lord, I thank you that you are sovereign, but I also thank you that you're good. And James was the same age as I was, but right then I realized that I had worlds of maturing to do. I had come in hoping to encourage James by telling him God was in charge. He was a violent, powerful, fierce God. And James was an ardent believer in that. He he believed in the sovereignty of God fiercely, but he had captured something that in my naivety I had overlooked. God is not just a callous, capricious, indifferent God. He's a good, gracious, merciful God who, in Habakkuk's words, in his wrath, remembers mercy. I can trust my God because he is great, but also because he is good. Lord, we do thank you for these promises that we have received from your prophet Habakkuk so many years ago. Thank you that these words still speak to us and give us confidence and hope in the midst of trial and trouble and even the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, the terminal concerns that we will all eventually face. And Lord, we ask uh, that having reviewed this uh, material here from your prophet Habakkuk, we might be better positioned uh, to uh, adopt a Christian worldview when these troubles come our way. We pray all this in your name. Amen. I don't really have anything else to say besides uh, enjoy some fellowship together. Hope to see you Wednesday evening. Uh, If you come a little early, there will be a dinner to share at 5.45. Enjoy some fellowship before you leave this evening. Thank you again for Snowbirders for coming out today. We much appreciate it. All right, you're dismissed.